Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse exposition through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. week. I got a lot of good feedback on last week. Everybody seemed to enjoy getting to hear from the other members of the congregation, and I hope that you all came away with the same realization that Betty shared with me a couple of weeks ago. She said how much she had enjoyed listening to everybody's testimony Because she said, I realized I'm not alone. Everybody is kind of in the same state I'm in. We're all just trusting that Christ is going to get us through day by day. But troubles come and problems come. And sometimes it's just very helpful and heartwarming to find out that you're not alone in this journey. And that other people are also having a a tough time of it. But that their faith is carrying them through it day by day. And that's really all you get. You got no promise for tomorrow, and you can't do anything about yesterday. So all you've really got is today, 
And I can promise you today, you put your faith in Christ, he'll get you through today. So I really appreciate the testimonials last week. Turn to Romans 1. We're still in Romans 1. Hopefully we'll get a little bit further this morning. We're actually going to start in verse 16, but by way of introduction, I want to remind you of some of the things that we've already covered a couple of weeks ago in the introduction to the book of Romans. I pointed out two things that I don't want you to forget as you're reading through this book. I'm going to mention it a lot, I'm sure, in the weeks and months ahead. But Paul is writing to two different audiences, two different churches that have two different histories, two different backgrounds. He's writing to both believing Jews in Rome, but he's also writing to believing Gentiles in Rome. And their history and their background and their religion plays very heavily on how Paul addresses each of them. For instance, to the Jews, they have the law. They've had 1,400 years of interaction with Yahweh. And they know that there's only one God. That's the essence of the Shema. That the Lord our God, he is one God. That is a basic declaration of Judaism. And he is the law-giving God. So they know that. So Paul can, in referring to the Jewish audience, sometimes speak in a sort of shorthand and just remind them of what their scriptures already say. But when speaking to the Gentile side of the audience, he's talking to a, a group of people in Rome who have a whole pantheon of Greek gods. They don't believe in just one god. They believe in demigods and mythology. In fact, Roman mythology is just Greek mythology with Roman names. All they did was rename the Greek gods and then took all of that as part of their culture, part of their heritage, part of their belief, part of their worship, part of their temples. And so when Paul comes along and says, no, there's only one God, well, that's a huge mindset change that they've got to go through in order to understand what Paul is getting at. So with the Jews, he can say one God. They'll say, yes, I know that one God, that's Yahweh. He says to the Gentiles, there's only one God. They naturally say, who? In fact, keep your finger right where where we are in Romans 1 and turn backwards one book to the book of Acts. Go to Acts 17 for just a moment. Because in Acts 17, you'll see Paul interacting with this very condition that I've just described among the Gentiles. He was in Athens, and he goes up to Mars Hill, and he finds philosophers up there, and he finds that they have made altars for several different gods. And then just in case they missed one, they had an altar to an unknown god. And so then Paul uses that opportunity to teach about Christ. Now, you'll notice, by the way, that when dealing with these Gentiles who don't have any of that Hebrew background, who don't have any of the Old Testament or the law, you'll notice that he preaches God and Christ as judges. And you'll notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, God is love and he has a wonderful plan for your life. He doesn't say anything that the current crop of evangelists say when they say to people, you know, God loves you. He doesn't say anything like that. What he says is God is a judge, and that's the God you don't know. So I'm here to declare that God to you. In fact, of the many and various sermons that you'll find in the book of Acts, you know what one word does not appear anywhere in the book of Acts? Love. Love doesn't appear anywhere in the book of Acts. All those early sermons, they never started with love. The love of God is something that Paul teaches as part of his overall doctrine so that we understand the inspiration for why God did the things he did, but he doesn't start there. He starts with, you're a sinner, 
and you're guilty, and God's a judge. And he's about to start the same way in the book of Romans. So I'm going to start reading in the book of Acts, chapter 17, starting at verse 16. It says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. That's very much what the Roman culture was like. Absolutely overwhelmed with idols and temples to idols. And Paul is moved by the number of idols because he knows that these idols are to gods that are not gods. There is one God. Yahweh is that God. And he sees a city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Do you know the difference between the Epicureans and the Stoics? Basically, the Epicureans were those who said, eat, drink, be merry. Just satiate your flesh every way you can. That's the way to live. The Stoics, you probably have heard that word Stoic through the years. The Stoics were the opposite end of the spectrum. They said, no, you keep your body down, you deny yourself, and that's the way that you find justice in your own life. So there were Stoics and Epicureans, and they were conversing with him. And some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? They really respected Paul. They're very high on what Paul had to say. What is this idle babbler going to say? Others said he seems to be proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So just preaching Jesus in that society was a strange God to them. They didn't know that particular deity. They had a whole pantheon of deities and semi-gods and demigods and demiurges. They had all those. But when Paul comes and preaches Christ, that's a strange deity to them. So they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is, which you are proclaiming for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. And we want to know, therefore, what these things mean. And then Luke adds sort of parenthetically in what we call verse 21 Now the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. They were very big on what's new. Show me something new. Now Paul comes and he's talking about this new deity, this new God that they know nothing about. Come to the gathering place of the philosophers and tell us this new thing that you're telling us. And Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens... I observe that you are very religious in all aspects. Now, that word religious there is alternately translated superstitious. You are way too superstitious because I've noticed that you have an altar to an unknown God just in case you missed one. And you have this whole pantheon of gods. And you're constantly worshiping whatever God you think is appropriate for whatever you need at that time. And I see you as altogether too religious, too superstitious. While I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, notice one, Notice that he said the Theos, the singular God, who made the world and everything that's in it, because they believed that depending on whether you're talking about structures or whether you're talking about nature or whether you're talking about storms or whether you're talking about agriculture or whether you're talking about your children, there were various different gods for each of those. And so Paul is saying, no, there's one God. He's in charge of everything. He made the whole world and all the things that are in it. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, you're going to see this word Lord a lot. That's the word kurios in the Greek. We living in modern America don't really understand what that word means. It is absolute Lord and master. 
the one who has complete control. Now, in ancient English society, they had serfs, they had people who would work the land, but then there was an owner of the land itself, and that owner of the land took from the serfs the things that they produced on the land. He was called the landlord. Anybody who's renting still today, I see several of you nodding your heads, you still have a landlord. Well, that's where that word comes from, that there was a lord of the land. Laird was the old Celtic word. And so he's using the specific word kurios, translated into English as lord, because in English society, that was the top guy. That was the guy who was in charge of everything. And in ancient culture, the kurios had the life or death dominion over you. And so Paul says, the God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the absolute kurios of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made of hands. Neither is he served by human hands. This was what every temple to an unknown God was all about. Every day they had to come and serve that God. And if that God had to be moved, they had to pick him up and move him. And if he were to speak, well, there would be these people, mystics, who would claim that they knew what the will of that particular God was. And he's saying the real God, the genuine God, doesn't need to be carried, can talk for himself. He's in complete charge, and he's not served by human hands. Your human hands can't do anything for him or improve him. In fact, your every breath, your every movement is because of him. You don't help him. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to everyone life and breath and all things. So where the Roman gods had to be served by human hands, human effort, human speech, he's saying the real God, the God who made everything, is the one who gave you hands, who gives you speech, who gives you breath, who empowers you. A God that needs to be carried around on human hands is dependent on humans. Paul draws the contrast and says the real God isn't dependent on anybody as if he needed anything. In fact, you're dependent on him because he gives you everything. Are you getting a sense of this is the society that Paul is dealing with when he's writing to the Romans? He's dealing with a people who have this kind of background, this multiplicity of gods that they deal with. And so when he writes to them about Jesus, when he writes to them about Yahweh, he has to find some kind of entrance to them because they don't naturally think in terms of the one God who made everything. So now Paul continues. Verse 26. He made from one, from one man, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. Okay, this is basic to Pauline thinking. You're going to see it as soon as we continue in Romans 1. You're going to see him say the creation itself is evidence and proof that the creator exists. And what can be known, not intimately known, gnosko is the Greek word, what can be generally known of God is demonstrated in the fact that the creation exists. So God is not far from any of us. He's going to say to the Romans, others just hold down that revelation of God in their unrighteousness. It is their unrighteousness that leads them to want to suppress the reality of the existence of God, even though the proof of the existence of God is absolutely everywhere. He's not far from each one of us. 
For in him we live, we move, we exist. The King James says we have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, in other words, God in his grace has overlooked the fact that you Gentiles didn't know any better. He's overlooked the times of ignorance, but God is now declaring to men that all men everywhere should repent. Okay, let's talk about that word just so there's no confusion about it. The word repent means turn 180 degrees. The basic idea of repentance is you go from this direction to that direction. And I'm sure my motion right here and my hand motions helped everybody on the internet very largely. It means to turn from the direction you were going into the opposite direction, to turn from yourself toward God, to turn from your self-justification to recognizing that you can only be justified through faith in Christ, turning from everything you think and believe, turning from your foreign man-made gods and idols, turning to the only God that is. And now all men everywhere, Jew or Gentile, every person on the planet, all the families of the earth are all told, turn from what you've always believed to the real God. So being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the craft of men. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent because, why should you repent? Not because God is gracious and kind and long-suffering. That's not where Paul goes. Like I said, he goes straight for because God is a judge. Because... He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. We know that's Christ Jesus. Having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So when God brought Jesus up from the grave, God declared, that's my evidence. That's my proof that that's the one I'm going to use to judge Everybody on the planet, because he's very God of very God, but he's also man. He knows what it is to go through the temptations that men go through. He knows what it is to be hungry. He knows what it is to be tired. He knows what it is to agonize. He knows the human condition. That makes him the perfect ideal judge. And he has set a day when he's going to judge everybody on the planet, Jew and Gentile, through that man because he has furnished proof. He's furnished proof. Paul keeps saying that. He's furnished proof. We're going to get to Romans 1, and he's going to say the creation is proof. Everything that can be recognized about God is in the fact that the creation exists. And he furnished further proof by the fact that he raised his son from the dead. Now, of course, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, and others said, we're going to hear you again concerning this thing. Go to Romans 1 now. Naturally, when you tell people the truth and when you preach Christ to them, they will, as quickly as they can, find something else to yammer about. They'll find something, yes, but, what about, yeah, but, so they started arguing about the resurrection. Romans 1, starting in verse 16. And yes, that was... All introduction. <laughs> I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the euangelion, the good news. For it is the dunamis, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Look at the phrase, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at this verse in more detail, and I told you that the word power there is best translated as it is the effective means through which God saves people. The preaching of the gospel is the way that God draws people to himself. 
but to the Jew and also to the Gentile. Now we're talking about this Jew-Gentile distinction. To the Jew, they would hear that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, and they would understand that their prophets and their scripture had all predicted the Messiah to come. And so all Paul is really doing is identifying that one, that Messiah. And so to the Jew, that sort of makes historic and logical sense if they accept it on a religious basis. But to the Greek, this idea that the gospel is the power of God to salvation, leading to salvation, the Jewish mind couldn't handle that. Remember in the book of Acts that Peter had to be taught while he was at the house of Simon the Tanner. He had to be taught that it was okay to go with Cornelius and go preach to the Gentiles. The Jewish mind was naturally averse to the idea that Yahweh, the God of Israel, was going to save Gentiles. Now, yes, of course, Paul has argued, and will continue to argue, that that's part of the Abrahamic covenant. That as soon as God said, through your seed, all of the families of the earth are going to be blessed, he was predicting the fact that Gentiles were going to be brought into the family, that they were going to be adopted into the grace of God. But first century Judaism, with all of its religious practices, and with all its law and all its ordinances, they understood that those laws and ordinances made them separate from the Gentiles. And so they looked down on the Gentiles. They referred to them as dogs because they were unclean before the Jewish mind. The Jewish mind was doing the sacrifices. The Jewish mind was doing the worship. The Jewish mind had the prophets. The Jewish mind, they had the scripture. They had the revelation of God that the Gentiles didn't have. And if God is absolutely sovereign, as he's declared to be in their scripture, then it was part of God's sovereignty that the Gentiles weren't included. They weren't included because even God didn't like them. But now Paul is declaring that Jew or Gentile, they can be saved through the effective means of the gospel. Jew or Gentile. That's really difficult for the Jewish mind to hold on to. But wait, Paul goes further. Skip ahead to chapter 2 for a moment. Take a look at verse 9. We'll start there. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. Same phrase. He said salvation through the gospel of Christ is available to the Jew and also to the Greek. That was hard for the Jew to get a hold of. But even harder for them to hold on to was there's going to be tribulation and distress for every soul that does evil to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Well, the Jewish mind would say, well, of course the Greeks. They're bad. They're dogs. Of course they deserve the punishment of God. What do you mean the Jews? Remember when Jesus confronted the Jewish leaders? They said, we have Abraham as our father. That was the claim of every Jew. We are Abraham's seed. And as such, they believed that they were in good with God. And now Paul comes along and says... To the Jew, there is also going to be all this tribulation and distress for every soul that does evil. So Paul is really leveling the playing field here. And he's saying the Jewish distinction doesn't matter, doesn't count, doesn't give you a leg up where Christ is concerned. The Jew and the Gentile are both guilty. And that's the next thing he's going to go into. He's going to say what the natural man is like. Now, of course, natural men don't like this description. Natural men don't like the fact that the Bible says we're all really, really depraved. And in fact, I continue to argue that if you want proof of your depravity, you're really too depraved to understand how depraved you are. Part of your depravity is your ego, which will protect you from the recognition of how depraved you are. And you'll start hearing yourself thinking things like, well, I'm not that bad. You'll hear yourself saying, well, yeah, total depravity, I get that, but maybe, not, maybe some people not totally. 
I mean, mostly, sure, mostly depraved. Mulip, you know, instead of tulip, mostly <laughs> depraved instead of, never mind. <laughs> I have no idea why that fell out of my face. <laughs> so Paul's going to say that everybody across the board is guilty, Jew or Gentile, because natural human beings are like this. Now, when he gets into the list, most of the things that he lists are actually included in the law. The Jewish audience that he's writing to should know that there are prohibitions against these things, but they're still guilty of it. The Gentile mind Living in the Roman culture and Roman society, most of the things that Paul says don't be like this, don't do this, he's going to bring up matters of character and matters of action and behavior, and most of the things he's going to bring up are things they think are fine. It's part of their life. It's part of their culture, very much like modern American culture. You're going to read some of these things and think, that's not so bad. For instance, here, we'll just pick one at random. Gossip. Oh, come on. Gossip? Is that that bad? Gossip. Whispering, tailbearing, saying something negative about somebody else. Is that really that bad? Paul's going to put it right in the middle of this list. And so it would be easy for us to find things in this list and say, oh, yeah, that's bad. That, yeah, God, get those people. <laughs> and yet, we all have that tendency to know something about somebody else and start talking and start thinking that our gossip isn't quite as bad as everybody else's gossip. Because that's just natural human condition. And to the Gentiles living in Rome, this is just natural human behavior. And so they justify it as natural human behavior. And Paul's going to come along and say, that's the very behavior that makes you so guilty that you can't be justified. And the God who is a judge, who has appointed a day when he's going to judge everybody on the planet, is going to hold you guilty for that. And he has a reason for doing this. He has a reason for all this bad news. The reason for the bad news is so that he can say, here's the good news. Let me tell you about Christ. There is an answer. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in that euangelion, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. That's where we ended two weeks ago. All right, verse 18, we're into the new stuff. For the love of God is revealed from heaven. Is that what it says? No. no. See, Paul doesn't start with God is love. Paul starts at the wrath, the anger, the judgment of God is revealed. It's laid out in the creation itself. In fact, it's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, in the Greek pantheon of gods, they were so concerned with this idea of justice and treating people justly that they even had a goddess whose name was Decay. Decay was the goddess of justice and fair play. Well, the reason I bring up that particular name is that this word has that DK idea, that DK word right in the middle of it. Paul is talking about righteousness and using that name for justice, but then he's putting the alpha negative on it and saying lack of justice, lack of righteousness. And it is because of that lack of righteousness that men who should be able to see the obvious right in front of them will repress that truth, will hold that truth down, will suppress it and not come to terms with it because of their unrighteousness. And then Paul's going to dig further into what that unrighteousness looks like. But first he's going to say that the wrath of God is revealed. Now he's going to tell you how it's revealed. 
verse 19. Because that which is known. Now, again, in the English, we just have this word known. In the Greek, there are a couple of different words. There's prognosko, which means perfect knowledge, understanding, the kind of knowing that God has with his people. And then there's gnosko, which just means general revelation, general understanding. The same way that I might say, um, I, I know Brad Pitt. I don't know why I'd say that. But if I said that, my knowledge of Brad Pitt is based on the fact that every once in a while I see the rags, the newspapers and magazine covers in the checkout line, and so I know some stuff about Brad Pitt. But I don't have any intimate knowledge of him. We're not friends. We don't have any affection for each other. There's no prognosco going on between us. There's just a general awareness, a general knowing of him. Does that make sense? Did that example help? Okay. Well, then... What can be generally known about God, the fact that he exists, and that knowledge that he exists is right in the creation. Because that which is known about God is obvious, is evident. It's clearly seen in the fact that the creation exists. Here's the popular example. I have a watch. Most all of you have a watch. All of you have clocks in your house. Everybody who has a chronograph of any type knows that it was made. Somebody made it. Somebody created that chronograph. And yet, the solar system on which our watches are based, the weeks, the days, the months, the seasons, are all based on the universe at large. And yet, there are people who believe that that wasn't created. That wasn't made. Even though we understand the basics of my watch, yes, someone made that. But the giant watch of the universe, nobody made that. That's a perfect example of holding down the truth in unrighteousness. Why would they think that way? Well, because it doesn't hurt their sense of morality to admit that their watch was made. But it's really disturbing to their Morality into their sense of well-being and their fear of judgment if there is a creator of the universe. So they deny the creator of the universe even though they're willing to say their watch was made because they can handle that. So Paul is arguing that it is their unrighteousness that causes them to hold down the truth that's obvious, it's evident. Because that which is known about God is evident. Now the NASB says it's evident within them. Some translations will say it's evident unto them. In either case, he's saying it's evident to these people that God exists. For God made it evident to them. So God, the absolutely sovereign God, made the creation in such a way that it's obvious that he exists. You walk outside, you look up at the sky, you see a bunch of stuff that you're not in control of, and yet it works, it functions, you assume someone's controlling it, right? Right. Well, not everybody does that. Some people walk outside and they see giraffes, platypuses, and leon, and they say, that's natural selection. And then they end up giving natural selection, which is not a thing, by the way, it's just a phrase... But then they imbue the concept of natural selection with the powers of God. And they end up saying, well, natural selection chooses who survives and who goes. Wait, it's not a thing. How does it choose? It doesn't have a mind. It doesn't have a thought. It doesn't have a will. How does it choose? But they're willing to believe in something like natural selection in order to not believe the evident truth that God exists and he's in charge. Because if he exists and if he's in charge, then he is the God that Paul described. He's the judge. And he's the righteous judge. And we're unrighteous in denying that judge. So we're really in trouble if we deny him. Because that which is known of God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, now we know what he's talking about. He's talking about the creation. Ever since he first created it, since he spoke it into being, since he made the planet, 
since he made the solar systems, for since the creation of the world, his, his invisible attributes is the way it's translated in the NASB. In other words, the things that would otherwise be invisible to the naked eye are clearly seen in the creation. Remember what we were talking about this past Wednesday out of Job, that part of Job's frustration was that he knew God was absolutely sovereign and in everything, he just couldn't find him. If he could find him, he could get him to sit down and explain himself. But he could see him everywhere. And that was his frustration. Well, Paul is saying very much the same thing. God is everywhere and in everything, and he made everything, and he created everything, and everything consists and has its being because of God. And that very fact is enough that God can hold everybody guilty for the fact that he has laid out his evidence. He's already put his evidence in front of everybody. Sometimes people say, what about native tribes that have never heard the gospel? Or what about people in forests of South America who have never heard the gospel? According to Paul here, already guilty. Because what can be known of God is already stated right in the creation. If they get rain regularly, if they have food to eat, if they know their own name, if they can look at a tree and see how it works and how it grows, and just as they look at the creation, the creation screams, creator. That's Paul's argument, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes... His eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. You hear that phrase? It's clearly seen and clearly understood through what has been made. Ever since the creation of the world, God has said, I'm right here. I'm the creator. All you got to do is look at what I made and it's obvious I exist. And what can be known about his divine nature and his eternal power is on display in the creation. Now, Paul is going to admit that doesn't save anybody, but it does condemn everybody. It does make everybody guilty because people in their unrighteousness will say, there's no God. I don't have to worry about God. I don't have to think about God. Well, then you have to deny um, Everything. You have to look at everything and say, yeah, that counts for nothing. It's clearly seen being understood through what's been made so that they're without excuse. They are without excuse. They can't say, nobody ever told me. God's going to say, I told you over and over again your whole life. Every time you drank water or breathed air. That was part of my creation. Every time you didn't fall off the planet, my creation. Every time you woke up and knew your children's names, that's me. I did all that. Every time you drew breath in your nostrils, me, I did that. From the very beginning, the creation and everything I made speaks of me, and that makes you guilty. For even though they knew God, that's that word of even though they had the concept, the understanding, even though they had all the evidence, even though it was right there in front of them, they did not honor him as God. Or give thanks. Aren't thankless people fun to be around? <laughs> thankless people. I, I think if there's any one word that sort of encapsulates the society in which we live right now, the lack of thankfulness is kind of it. Very entitled, very me first, very get mine. It doesn't matter what happens to you. That absolutely permeates our culture. And here God is saying they didn't honor him as God. We see that everywhere. And they don't give thanks. That gives you some idea how important thanksgiving is to God. Because he put it right up there second after they didn't honor me, 
In other words, they didn't worship me. They didn't recognize that I was the creator of everything. And right behind it, they didn't give thanks. You got up this morning and you put clothes on your body. Micah chose a blue sweater. I'm willing to bet, and I'm not trying to condemn him, I'm just saying, I'm willing to bet you didn't pause and give thanks. You probably slapped on a sweater. Most of us ate breakfast. Don't you, I'll go to you next. (laughs) Most of you had breakfast this morning. How many of you prayed first? Give thanks and everything. How many of you woke up this morning knowing your own name? Did you give thanks for that? I mean, we're just naturally so accustomed to the grace and the goodness of God in giving us so many things that we have forgotten to go back and say, thank you. This was so important that when Jesus healed the ten lepers, nine went off, one came back and said thanks. He said, weren't there ten? Where are the other nine? Held them guilty for not saying thanks. I mean, this is very, very important to God. And then you say, well, what what should I be thankful for? Well, so far, Paul has listed everything across the board. We should be the most thankful people on the planet. Not only do we have plenty of food and clothing and cars and Nintendos and TVs and computers and stuff and tables and chairs and houses and we just we have so much stuff we should be so thankful are we no no we're just used to it we're accustomed to it God's been good to us yet another day another 24 hours where I continued to have everything he gave me I don't need to thank him he knows I appreciate it Go back and be thankful for everything because God puts it right up there with they didn't honor me as God. They honored all these other gods, these mythological gods, these demigods. They honor those. They make altars to them. They make temples to them. But they don't honor me. And they don't give thanks. So as a result, they became Futile in their speculations. What were they speculating about so futilely? Well, they were speculating that there were all these other gods. They were speculating that life was up to them. They were speculating that they were in charge. And so God says they are futile in their speculations. Completely empty in their speculations. They know nothing. And yet they think they're so smart. In fact, we're about to get to that. In verse 22, he's going to say, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They were so busy speculating in a futile way, and their foolish heart was darkened. Meanwhile, while their foolish hearts are darkened, they're walking around talking about me smart. You know, me know some stuff. I'm in charge of me life, and I, more me, 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 me. So let's stop talking about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think of me? More me. And he says they're foolish heart. It's full of these foolish speculations. Is darkened. How? They don't see the truth all around them. They don't see the reality of the creation. They don't see God making plain, making obvious his existence. And as a result, they don't honor him. They're not thankful to him. And yet, they're busy breathing his air. They're busy drinking his water, eating his food, killing his animals, eating the grain that comes up from his earth. They're so busy being foolish, they're not even thankful over the fact that they live another day and he is the source of all life. They're not thankful. Do you get some sense now? Why God would look on them and say, not good. This is not the way you ought to be. Well, wait, it gets worse. Hang with me. It's not their fault. I mean, how else are they going to know unless it's revealed to them? It's kind of a pitiable situation as opposed to, you know, oh, they're stupid and oh, they're... Well, I would say two things. I would say pitiable situation, yes. 
their fault? Yes, because Paul right here says they're without excuse. So can God judge them for not seeing it and for having hard hearts and not being thankful? Absolutely. Because he's given them the demonstration. He's given them everything they need. So even if you end up saying not their fault, God says, yeah, their fault. Now, if that seems harsh to us, and since you did use the phrase, that's a pitiable situation, I agree with you. It's pitiable, but it's also what a sovereign God does. And so, remember, maybe a half hour ago, I said when we read through this description, people won't like it. Well, yeah, we don't like it. It doesn't feel good to our flesh. It doesn't appeal to our egos. But it's what it says. And it's how an absolutely sovereign God is. So you have two choices. You can either be angry at that God for being like that, and then he'll judge you for it. Or you can bring yourself into line with what he's really like. That's the repent part. That's turning from what you think is right to what God says is right. So, No, well, it, it kind of followed with the argument, so I appreciate the assist. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the doxa, the glory, the essence of what a thing is. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God. That's the sinless God. That's the non-evil God. Now, the reason that's so important to Roman thinking is that some of their mythological and demigods did evil stuff and were very mischievous, got into all kinds of trouble. When he's identifying the only God, the real God, he says that God is sinless and uncorruptible. He's only pure and holy. He is only light and righteousness, unlike your gods. But professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. In other words, they made idols for themselves, and some of those idols were of animals and four-footed creatures and, and snakes and lizards. And you know, In Egypt, they had an alligator god because there were alligators in the Nile, and it was a big problem for them. And so, well, we need an alligator god to control our alligator problem. I mean, they had gods for everything. They had a pantheon of gods. And he's saying they think they're smart in worshiping all those various different gods, but in fact, they've become fools, their hearts are darkened, and they've exchanged the real glory. They've exchanged the glory of the only incorruptible God for an idol. And it's an idol, even worse, it's an idol of something that's corruptible. Okay, how many of you are going to die? Yeah, okay. If you didn't raise your hand, you liar. Um... (laughs) Yeah, we're all going to die. You know why? We're corruptible. Our bodies are decaying, wearing down. One day our body lays down for the permanent dirt nap. We're, we're done. This is, that's it for this body. When we're raised, later we're raised incorruptible. That's what Paul says. When we're raised in the resurrection, we're going to get a new body. But this corruptible body is going to die. So since we are corruptible, let's just pick somebody in the room who we can all agree is really, really corruptible. So Kellen, who earlier tried to give Micah a hard time, and I told you I'd get back to you. So Kellen is corruptible. Do we all agree with that? Your mother-in-law is nodding way too vigorously back there. But Kellen's totally corruptible. Should we worship him? No. No, why not? He's corruptible. He's no better than you are. He's just like you. He's a sinner that's dying. You're a sinner that's dying. What's the point of worshiping him? That's stupid to do something like that. Paul says, that's what you're doing. That's what the people were doing. Remember what we read out of the book of Acts, that he was upset when he went through the streets of Athens, that there were so many temples to so many corruptible gods, so many idols that couldn't speak, that couldn't walk, that couldn't think, 
and yet they're the idols made in the shape of men and animals and four-footed creatures it's slithery snakes why anybody would idolize that I have no idea <laughs> therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their heart to impurity so God's pure God's perfectly righteous and pure and he gives them over to their impurity because they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image and in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures and therefore God gave them over that's what they want that's what they were longing for and so God finally says it's yours you don't want me you want that that's part of your foolish heart being darkened okay you want that have it he turned them over to the lusts of their heart to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them. And they exchanged the truth of God, the reality of God, the creator God, the sovereign God, the one who made everything and the one to whom you ought to be thankful. That's the truth. Who sent his son and then testified that it was his son by raising him from the dead. Ample proof. That's the truth of God, and they traded that for a lie. They exchanged that for a statue of a snake. They can't think, they can't talk, they can't walk, they can't do anything for them, and yet they're willing to worship that, but they won't worship or thank the real true God, even though the real true God has ample evidence of his existence by the very fact that the creation exists and that it works. Can you see why God would say that's foolish? Yes. That's just silly. That's just stupid. Why would you do that? Well, there's only one reason you would do that. Because your heart is darkened. Because you can no longer see the reality all around you. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. That their bodies might be dishonored among them. And they traded the truth of God for a lie. And they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Isn't that the whole point? The creation screams creator. Mm -hmm. And then they worship the creation. If you're worshipping a cow, there are people right now hungry on the streets of India. And their streets are crowded with cattle. That they won't eat because they think the cows are gods. How do you explain that? Well, they worship the creature rather than the creator. And there are many, many similar examples. You walk into most any Catholic church, you're going to see iconology everywhere. You're going to see statues that they genuflect to and light candles to. That statue isn't benefited by that. And they're getting no spiritual benefit from it, but they're worshiping the creation of their own hands. Somebody made that statue. Somebody painted that statue. Somebody mass-produced those statues. And then people worship them rather than worshiping God. And Paul finishes by saying, rather than worshiping the creator who is blessed forever, amen. So the real God, the real creator, absolutely blessed, absolutely holy, absolutely pure, absolutely light. And yet people, as a demonstration of their darkness, of their hard-heartedness, of their inability to do anything but suppress the truth in their unrighteousness, those people, rather than worship that right and holy and pure one, the only entity in the whole universe who deserves worship rather than worship him they worship what would basically be the equivalent of Kellen and we all agreed Kellen doesn't deserve worship can I get a witness from Kellen's mother-in-law amen there's an amen in the back okay all right both hands went up two hands went up yeah now when I say that all of that you who fortunately 
have the spirit of God and have the mind of God. You have the revelation of God given to you. And so when I say and you recognize that the world in its hard-heartedness, in its holding down the truth, that they do worship all kinds of things that are of no value and of no account while they're busy ignoring the reality of the Creator, to us that all seems just absolutely crazy. Now look at it from God's perspective. God, the one who made everything, who created everything, who owns everything, who is in charge of everything, he looks on humankind and what does he see? He sees people not giving him the worship and the thankfulness that he alone deserves and instead worshiping each other, worshiping cattle and snakes, worshiping sports stars and pop stars, worshiping anything instead of the real, genuine, pure God, the only one who is blessed forever. Now that's the basis on which Paul is saying everybody's guilty. He's leveling the playing field. He's laying out his argument that everybody, Jew or Gentile, is guilty. Because now he's going to go into, well I say now, it'll be a week from now, But a week from now, we're going to look, because he's not near done, he's going to go into a list of 17 characteristics of human beings that make these human beings guilty, guilty, guilty. And even if you can look at three of them and say, well, I don't do that. He's still got 14 to deal with. And he's going to say, everybody across the board is guilty. And then say, and who are you to judge anybody? Because everybody's guilty. Across the board, you're all guilty. So then on what basis can you judge? Proof yet again that only God and Christ can judge because they're the only righteous, holy, pure, sinless ones, which is why he has to keep stressing the only truly sinless God is a judge. That's why he keeps stressing that while saying, don't you judge each other because you're just as guilty. Okay, so that was the feel-good sermon of the morning. Come back next week, and it's going to get worse. We're really going to drill down next week and even look at some of the Greek words that Paul chooses to use because they're even more insightful than the English translations of those words. I think we become so familiar with the English words, we forget the depth of what the Bible really says about our depravity. But then once... I get you in that place that Paul is working so hard to get you to, where you recognize your own sinfulness and your own depravity, then he's going to introduce the cure. And it's so good to know that the cure exists. And only against that backdrop of your extreme darkness and blackness and guilt is the good news really, really good news. If you think you're kind of capable... If you think you're not really that bad, if you think you're doing better than some other people, then when someone says to you, there's a cure, then you can kind of take that haphazardly. You can say, yeah, there's a cure, but so what? I'm doing fine on my own. It's only when you know how deeply, deeply depraved you are and how an absolutely holy, sinless, sovereign God sees that depravity that you can really appreciate it when the good news comes along. Of Christ the Redeemer. So that's where we're headed. That's where Paul's headed. And that's what we'll get to in the weeks ahead. Questions? Yes, sir. I appreciate you trying to get that all in one week as you earlier said. We, you want to get through the list? There was just no way. The list we didn't yeah. start? <laughs> I mean, we could, but we'd be here another hour. Right. Yeah. I'm thankful in a sense. God. You're thankful that I didn't go another hour? Yeah. Is that? Oh. Thankful that God didn't let it all happen in one week. See, that is an example of human depravity right there. <laughs> Anybody who wants. No, 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 no. I'm sorry, say what you were saying. Thankful that, yeah, it can't be done in one week. Yeah. And it's going to take another because it's going to. It's going to. It's going to. Yeah. It's, it's exponential, it keeps growing. And you can tell by the words that Paul uses that he's really working to drive this point home because it's essential to his declaration of the gospel. You've got to know how bad you are before you can really appreciate a Savior. It's not even done in most churches. 
No, not even done in most churches, especially the churches that are up, up, up with people, and you're fine, and you're good, and I'm your life coach, and all that stuff. They're never going to tell you how truly, genuinely evil and depraved you are, but then how can they possibly worship a full Savior? Why do they need a perfect Savior if they can do it themselves? Any other comments? Anything? Well, then say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.